from WKNC Raleigh on the campus of NC State University. This, my friends, this is Mystery Roach, your two-hour study of Prague fusion, psychedelic garage, and noise from the 60s, 70s, and beyond, as well as conversations with an eclectic mix of guests bringing you your conversational mixtape. I'm one of uh, three in the studio this morning. Two guests, oh, excuse me, two hosts, one guest. I'm Dottore Barbarossa. And I'm Double 10,000. And joining us this morning is Justin Johnson, game designer, assistant professor of simulation and game design at William Peace University, as well as a doctor of design practitioner here at NC State. We'll be talking about the elements of game design, trace the evolution of open world games, and we'll be talking about Justin's research in health, games, and VR. I'll try my best not to talk too much about Breath of the Wild. All that and the usual collection of music. If you want to reach us in the studio at any time, you can always call at 919-515-0881. You can also email us at mysteryroach at wknc.org. Or you can like us on Facebook. You can message us there and keep up with the latest news about the show. You can also find links to music and articles and more. We've got a thematic mixtape as usual for our guests. We're starting things off with Eloy. Uh, we're going to hear a track off of uh, Power and the Passion, which is, uh, if if you recall, uh, several years ago we listened to the entire record. It's a story of a young man who t- travels back in time uh, and meets a young woman and falls in love. Uh, the reason I chose this song for our mix are the voices. If you're a Breath of the Wild fan, potentially a pick up on it. Stay tuned. We'll talk with Justin here in about 10 minutes. 88.1 KNC and Mystery Roach. That was Eloy with the song Love Over Six Centuries from the album Power and the Passion as part of our thematic playlist this morning. And that is for our conversation with Justin Johnson. He is a game designer, a, an assistant professor of simulation and game design at William Peace University, and a doctor of design practitioner here at NC State. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. As, as you know, as we were geeking out off air, I've, I've been super excited about this subject specifically. Uh, we, we both have spent time addicted to Breath of the Wild. My addiction is current. Mm-hmm. Yours has has, uh, has been suppressed slightly. Uh, but more importantly and more broadly, we're here to talk about the elements of game design uh, and look at the evolution of open world games and talk about your research, uh, interestingly, uh, more interestingly, and that's in health, games, and VR. Yep. And that's work you're doing here at NC State? Yeah, research I'm doing with in the doctor design program. Okay. Yep. And we're going to get into that as the show progresses. We're going to start off this morning by talking about your background, what got you here to the program, um, and your work in the industry, how you got started, where you've been. Uh, and we'll talk about what open game designs are and, and what that means as, um, as opposed to more, more strict scrolling games or linear games. So you, um, you studied game design as, as an undergrad, is that right? What was the program specifically? I know you, you came out of school and started working in the industry. Yeah, so I studied uh, video game art and design, and I was lucky enough to get a job while still in school doing some freelance work. And did that was that, was that a big help in, in your courses and that you, you saw where a lot of this stuff, uh, was how it was applied and the more modern, or, or, or was it a hindrance because it was, it was more of a distraction, like I want to be working, I want to be out there, I just want to finish up. It, no, it was good. Uh, I think it, it was a great program. We had a lot of faculty who had experience in the industry, which is always helpful. And what was the school that was in Pittsburgh? Is that right? Yeah, Art Institute of Pittsburgh. And and was that a fairly new game design program or had that been around for a while? Yeah, I think it was pretty new. I was one of the first uh, sort of groups of students going in. Probably no. one of the first couple quarters or at least the first year. Early aughts, 2003, Yeah, early 2004. 2000s. Yep. So is that basically the phenomenon across the country and maybe around the world that 
you know, video games went from, you know, in the 80s and 90s as, you know, parents complaining you're going to rot your brain to institutions recognizing that this is an industry, uh, a lucrative industry. So uh, they, they were scrambling to get, get programs in place. And folks like yourself were in the early days kind of seeing that growth. Yeah, it's, it's been growing a lot, especially, and then especially in academia. So a lot of college programs are coming up uh, teaching young people how to make games or teaching people how they can take their skills in art and programming and apply it to video game design. So, you know, like at, at WPU where I teach now, our program's fairly new. So we started in 2013, 2014, um, and there's a lot of new programs in the area. Uh, North Carolina is a pretty good place to study game design, actually. And, and you're, um, you're, you serve as advisor, you teach courses, you also are designing the program itself. Like you're involved in all of that. Um, and your industry experience is probably valued by the students. Like they see you as not somebody who's just talking theoretically, but, but who's got experience, has gotten their, their boots dirty in the industry, kind of advise them on, on career paths that will take them in the right direction. Yeah. I, I try to stay as active as I can in the industry, taking on contract work, freelance work, uh, doing research, doing personal projects just to keep the skills up. The game industry moves very fast, so tools change, industry changes, softwares update, um, you know, techniques come and then they die off, and then new techniques come for for creating creating games. So you have to be on top of it, and you have to be teaching the students, you know, what they're doing, uh, what's the latest and greatest tools and techniques. So it's it's important to be active, and to make sure that they're current, so that they can be competitive, because it's a very competitive industry. Coming yeah. out of school. I bet it is. And then how, how big is the program here that you're in, the Doctor of Design? Uh, the Doctor of Design program at State is, is fairly new. Uh, I'm in the first cohort, and I think the first cohort had seven or eight students. And then they have a second, and then I think they're working on a third. So <laughs> they're only a couple years in, so there's not a lot. but That's got to be uh, interesting because you it's not open field completely, but you know, the students themselves probably are influ- influencing to a large degree how the program is, is evolving, I would imagine, that your interests and your research directions probably shape a little bit of what happens. Yeah, it's, it's a very diverse group of students. Um, and, it, and the program itself is fairly open. So you can kind of do, um, well, you can't do what you want, but you can use the program to do research in your field and push the boundaries of your field and grow in your field. So we have landscape architects, um, I'm a game designer, uh, we have all kinds of other designers and, and uh, practitioners in the program. And it's just really cool to get a lot of different perspectives and how to combine and how to use those perspectives in your in your field and in your research. So I've been getting a lot of inspiration from uh, landscape architects, for example. Yeah. And then how their principles of designing real landscapes can apply to games and virtual landscapes. And, you know, you said open and it sounds like, uh, you know, we're getting now segueing into what we'll be talking about for the rest of the show. And that's that's open game design and your research in, in not only open games, but health uh, games and VR. I think what we'll do is take a short musical break, come back and lay out some definitions. So what makes an open game versus a more linear game? Um, and we'll be talking uh, up until 10 o'clock. If you've got questions, mysteryroach at WKNC.org. You can send us a message on Facebook or call the studio. Uh, it should be a fun conversation this morning. What's coming up next? Next up, we're going to be we're going to play Stumpy Meets the Firecracker in Stencil Forest by Happy the Man off of their debut album. I believe this was added by Artsoid, if I'm not mistaken. He had a, a, a large chunk of contribution to the show, uh, and his quote was, "This all always sounds like video game music to me." It's 88.1 KNC and Mystery Roach. 88.1 KNC and Mystery Roach. 
That was um, a song, the, A Pilgrim's Path by Bellberry Polly, off of the Bellberry Tales, which is kind of cheating because it's actually from 2012. But Well, that's why we say and beyond. That's, that's, how we, that's our fudge. That's our X factor. And we also got to play Happy the Man, by, or the artist was Happy the Man, and the song was Stumpy Meets the Firecracker in Central Forest. Which sounds like a video game. And we're, we're including all of that in our thematic mixtape uh, for our conversation with Justin Johnson. He is a game designer. And insist, he is also an assistant professor of simulation and game design at William Peace University. And he is a doctor of design practitioner here at NC State University. I keep pointing to the ground when I say NC State. You can't see that on the radio, but for some reason I'm doing that. So, Justin, uh, we're talking about elements of game design uh, and tracing the evolution of open world games, as well as talking about your research. We should start with the definitions. What is game design? What makes a good or a well-designed game Let's start with with a very broad subject, but let's define some some concepts that'll help us get into open world games. Yeah, so it it, it, it really depends on the genre. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of genres and different kinds of games mm-hmm. and games that serve different purposes and appeal to different kinds of players and audiences. But when I think of a good game, uh, there's a few things that come to mind. The first is how the game feels. So when you're playing the game, how easy is it to control the character? How intuitive is it to pick up the mechanics of what you need to do? And how does the game teach you how to do that? So uh, Breath of the Wild is a great example of doing that. Let's talk about Breath okay. of the Wild. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah. So what, what are some of the components of Breath of the Wild that, that assist the player in understanding how to perform in the game and how to enjoy the game, essentially? So going back to feel, Breath of the... It, it feels it's pretty easy to move around in Breath of the Wild. It feels natural. Yeah, um, pulling out the bow, aiming with the Switch controller, um, it's very intuitive. And uh, pulling out the weapons, it, it's just it's it's it has a lot of good feel to it. And then what about it feels good to play? And what about the world itself? Running, climbing, climbing up a mountain, running through a grass field. What parts of that um, atmosphere and are examples of good game design? So Breath of the Wild is an open world game, so you can pretty much do what you want from the start. You mm-hmm. can explore this huge world. It probably has one of the big, largest playable worlds. I don't think it's the largest, but it's definitely up there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you can explore woods, talk to NPC characters, uh, find and hunt animals. You can collect items to, to cook recipes. You can climb anything. You can go anywhere. Um, the game itself also has a lot of uh, appealing aesthetics. So one thing I like about it is there's always life in the environment. Yeah. So the grass is moving. There's leaves falling out of the tree. There's wind blowing. You can hear it. You can see it. Uh, the world just always feels alive. So it's very a dynamic world. Yeah, and, and, and it draws you in, too. I know you've done some work on, you know, landscape design principles applied, in, you know, to this virtual landscape. It, it makes you curious. It makes you want to see what's around the corner or what's over that mountain. Yeah, Playing Breath of the Wild, I found myself really enjoying just exploring the world. Yeah. Um, just trying to find every little thing, go around every little mountain, explore every square foot of, of, of Hyrule. And I started thinking about why that is. And having a conversation with, with my advisor at uh, NC State early in the doctor design program, I started hearing about landscape architecture principles, uh, landscape preference principles, things that people like to see and experience in landscapes that they prefer. And I started to see a connection between some of those attributes and then things that were uh, that I found in Breath of the Wild. So one big one is uh, this idea of mystery. So designing mystery into a landscape, it's, it's very 
well-researched topic in landscape design. Uh, and Breath of the Wild has it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And there's a lecture I found from 2017 where the developers of the game were showing how they increased and how they facilitated exploration of the world. Uh, and and some, sorry. No, I was just going to say, and some of the things they were doing uh, was implementing mystery. So they were kind of organically coming up with this idea that you can find in landscape research. So oftentimes when you get two, when you get people from two discourse communities talking about the same thing, they'll use different sets of jargon to describe the same concept. When you were listening to that lecture, did you find uh, that they were using um, terminology that, that was also found in landscape design? Or were they kind of arriving at concept a lens, concepts a landscape designer would be discussing, if that question makes sense? Did, do you find that they were explicitly saying, we're using concepts of landscape design? Or did you find that they, they kind of happened into it when, in, and that game design uh, and landscape design just have very similar overlapping needs? Yeah, I think they were happening into it. They're kind of coming up with it organically. I didn't see any common terms. Okay. But just looking at their visual aids and looking at their diagrams and, and how they were designing things, it aligned very closely to some of the principles from landscape design. So we've talked around it. Let's talk, say it, define it explicitly. An open world game is a game that allows you to go in any direction uh, and kind of do what you want to do within the physics of the game. Is that a, is that a fair definition? Yeah, open world games traditionally have uh, they have some story and narrative, but more or less the player can kind of control where they go and, and what happens to some degree. And there's very levels of of control. Um, some games like Breath of the Wild is very open. Other games are sort of open, but then there's certain things that kind like of difficulty direct, level or something like yeah, that. Yeah, difficulty level. Maybe you need a certain item to unlock this area, um, but more or less it's open. So we were talking before the show started, what was the first open world uh, example? Um, let's start with a major market open world example. Rather than getting into what well, was D&D, Double Ten Thousands, uh, you know, uh, time, I guess addiction, we'll call, we'll call it just as ours is Breath of the Wild. Um, but let's talk about major market, major market video games. What are some examples of early open world games uh, when maybe the computational power that's available now to make Breath of the Wild possible, all the sounds and sights? Mm-hmm. What are some early examples? Definitely the first Legend of Zelda is, is a key example for the NES. Yeah. So that game is pretty open world. Um, you can and, explore more or less where you want to go. And that was the first in the series, and that was the first of, uh, you know, that was on the original NES. That was when I was a kid. I was 12 or 13 when I got my hands on that game. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was a, a huge bump up from the Atari. I think Adventure arguably could be open world. There was a game Adventure on Atari, but very basic pixels moving around in like 12 screens legend of zelda or was a whole different animal i mean there was so much more computational power in between those two systems um it allowed more it allowed more yep um and then i think zelda continued that trend on the super nintendo so link to the past was fairly open Um, that game limited you based on the the kind of items you had to unlock different areas Um, but it was fairly open for the most part and then the Super Nintendo also introduced the genre called Metroidvania. So you had Super Metroid, where it's fairly open world, but it's a 2D side-scrolling. So it's not like a top-down or a 3D view. It's a, it's a 2D view. And you can explore that world pretty openly, also with some limitations depending on the ability of your character. So so a scrolling game that is not that way, Super Mario Brothers, uh, um, I, like Mega Man. Although Mega Man, I guess you could choose what level to go to, mm-hmm. but still it was a very defined path. Are the, are the elements of game design in those kinds of games, those more linear side-scrolling games, 
Uh, do you find much overlap with these more explorative open world uh, games? Because you're not necessarily, you don't need to be prompted to be curious to go to a place because you just have to go to that place. Are there overlapping elements of game design that, that, that are, are, you know, for both worlds or are they completely different? Yeah, I think there's some overlapping there. Uh, a game like Mega Man that has separate levels, those levels are fairly d controlled as far as the design goes. Mm -hmm. So you're designed to have a certain experience within this level and then the difficulty is controlled within this level. Um, open world games are more, the world is kind of like one piece. So one connecting larger world where you can just meander through the different areas uh, organically. So I think that's the big difference between the two. Um, but even some some games, like uh, we talked about Mario Odyssey a little bit, and Mario Odyssey is, is a more recent game on the Switch that has separate levels or separate worlds, but then those worlds themselves are sort of little open worlds, um, but then it's still very segmented, so that could be something that kind of overlaps the two, is more in the middle. And story is a big part of it as well. You mentioned that briefly. I mean, a lot of these things now, a lot of these games now have cutscenes. So you achieve a thing or you get to a certain location. There'll essentially be a mini movie that, that plays through. Um, has that always been a part of these open world games? I know the original Legend of Zelda, of course, had Ganon and you were freeing the princess. At least now there's a, a modern uh, version of a, of, a, of a strong female uh, role in, the, in Breath of the Wild, for example. She's an active part in destroying Ganon mm -hmm. versus just being captive. Are there any examples of open world games that are just wander around and look at stuff? I guess that that would eliminate that um, motivation to be doing so potentially. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I, you know, I I love open world games, but um, you know, I don't know how much time I have to explore all of <laughs> all of them because they're, they're games that take a lot of hours. Oh, they truly are, and I get sucked into them. So I try to kind of limit myself to some of my favorites. That's good. You have a healthy yeah. lifestyle. Yeah. And they all have some storytelling involved. Yeah. Obviously, um, like Breath of the Wild has the little cutscenes that you collect and that kind of have an overarching story that you're playing through, which is cool. Um, I also like the Fallout series. So Fallout 4 is fairly open and it has uh, has a story too. And um, in both of those games, you can learn the story through the cutscenes, but you can also talk to people, talk to NPC characters. You can get the story that way. Um, both of those games also tell stories with the environment itself. So the way the buildings are set up, uh, things you find in the buildings, just items in the environment can kind of tell stories. And uh, so there's a lot of different levels of storytelling in those kind of games. I think what we'll do now is take a short musical break, come back and talk about what it is to design a game, what it takes to build a game up and get deeper into that open world design. We've got about 20 more minutes left in this hour. We've got nine o'clock in the Frank Zappa moment of the week. We'll continue on until 10 o'clock talking with our guest, Justin Johnson, game designer and a, and a uh, assistant professor of simulation and game design at William Peace University, as well as a doctor of design practitioner here at NC State. Um, give us questions at mysteryroach at wknc.org. And now we'll be hearing the artist Gentle Giant with the song, The Runaway from In a Glass House, which just feels appropriate for video games. <laughs> 881KNC and Mystery Roach. That was Hoedown by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and we also got to hear In a Glass House by Gentle Giant, two songs that are loosely related <laughs> to our topic today. Hoedown, I, I guess, could be a video game about, uh, about horses, which would make uh, Old Shoes very happy. Uh, she keeps messaging questions about Breath of the Wild, most of them with about dragons and or horses we'll get to that later if you're just tuning in we've been talking with justin johnson he's a game designer he's an assistant professor of simulation and game design at william peace university and he's a doctor of design practitioner here at nc state 
We've been talking about elements of game design, talking about the evolution of open world games, and uh, we'll be talking about his research into health games in VR uh, next hour. We've got about uh, you know ten more minutes left of this hour, and then our Frank Zappa moment of the week. Let's let's kind of uh, wrap up the open world conversation, the definition anyway. We'll continue on into next hour. Um, do you do you see open worlds as how far can they progress? I mean, is VR going to play a part now into open worlds where you're just completely immersed in them? Uh, what limitations and computational power are you frustrated by? These are huge questions, mm-hmm. but the genre is not going anywhere. I guess is the, the the root of the question. Yeah, the genre is only growing. I think uh, it, it's you know a lot of games coming out now are kind of open world, like Red Dead Redemption Two. It's a big game, fairly open open world, um, very you know lucrative and successful game, and a lot of games like that are coming out, and it's it's becoming a pretty popular and big genre. So, you know, the computing power, is it able to handle these kind of games? The graphics can look realistic. Um, you know, game companies are able to push these huge multi-million dollar budgets and have these massive teams to create these kind of experiences. You know, I think that's the thing that universities are recognizing. And, you know, if they're looking to train students, you know, not only as citizens of, of the world, but also as employable citizens of the world, uh, game game design and game and even competition like playing games as as a I'm not saying every kid who plays a video game is going to go be competitive just like every kid who plays basketball is not going to be competitive but mm-hmm. but universities and 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 places that train folks are seeing that it is a a lucrative career path in, in some cases yeah it is definitely um, and not even in entertainment so in in other industries so other industries are adopting game technology and game engines and skills that game designers have uh, in order to do things like visualizations or simulations or training games, educational games. Um, I just read an article the other day on how the Mandalorian used the Unreal Engine, a game engine, to film some of their scenes. So game technology is, is moving into film. Um, architectural firms are using game engines to visualize their architectural designs and create experiences where people can not only see what it would look like, but walk around and feel what it looks like. Uh, and the game industry also pushes VR. So VR is becoming really popular and VR is being used in all kinds of different industries and research and uh, games, non-games and storytelling. We should define VR as virtual reality. I think most hear that term and know, but we should define it. Um, it's, is that, st- I mean, it's still fairly early in its in its stages, right? I mean, how long have have you been able to stick a phone up to your face and and call it VR? It's that's only five years now, right? Or maybe less. Yeah, I mean, it's been around for a while. Uh, it's become definitely mainstream in the last yeah, few years. I, I guess would say. that's what I'm affordable. Yeah, yeah. Because more you're getting more afford. It comes down to computational power. We're ca- we're carrying computers around in our pockets now, more powerful than that to land on the moon. We can process. The, the 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 polygons the imagery needed to mm. p- to present these things in VR faster and faster and faster and that's really why consumers now are getting it at an affordable rate yeah and they even have standalone headsets now like the quest which it doesn't require a computer and it looks pretty good and they have some really fun games for that like Vader immortal and other kind of VR games and uh, 360 video experiences and things like that so we're going to pause there. Next hour, we're going to get into your research. We're going to talk about your work in health games and VR. We're going to talk a little more about Breath of the Wild. Maybe we'll get to one of uh, Old Shoe's 17 questions. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll both, uh, Justin and I, will talk about why we don't ride horses in Breath of the Wild. For now, we'll close the hour out with another track. We'll have our Frank Zappa moment of the week coming up in a few minutes.
Next up, we're going to have The Journey Overture by Rick Wakeman, which is off of his composition that was based off of Journey to the Center of the Earth, which was a book, not a video game. But Seems like some, it should be. Somebody could have probably made a video game to it. It is. They just went down to the center of the earth and found a, a ton of stuff. Seems like you could fight <laughs> demons or rock people. There's all kinds of, all kinds of things that can manifest. Stay tuned. It's 88.1 KNC and Mystery Roach. That was Tangerine Dream with the song Vengeance and after our Frank Zappa moment of the week. And Tangerine Dream actually did do some video game music. They did some music for uh, Grand Theft Auto V, I believe, which I've never played before. And I feel like it's a very friendly, family unfriendly game. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) definitely not a family friendly game, though uh, it is an open world game. Um, But not my not my genre. Why are we talking about games? Well, Justin Johnson, game designer. Assistant Professor of Simulation and Game Design at William Peace University and Doctor of Design Practitioner here at NC State uh, is with us. That's why we've been talking about elements of game design, tracing the evolution of open world games, and talking about Justin's research in health games and VR. So, Justin, we've talked a lot about the design of games, what elements of games are, what makes games interesting and fun. We've we've suppressed our um, hidden desire to just talk about Breath of the Wild giddily for the next hour. Um, let's, let's talk about the elements and skill sets that go into building a game. So when you're advising students, when you're talking with colleagues, when working with colleagues, if a parent of somebody like my kid plays video games too much, like what he's, what should, you know, what's something that's a career path? Like what are the elements that go into designing a game and the skill sets? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's something I get asked a lot in my field as, as an academic and meeting parents and prospective students, and then just meeting other people that might want to get into games or learn more about it. Um, there, so making a game requires a lot of a lot of different skill sets. So you have uh, designers, obviously, and that kind of percolates into a lot of different subfields: environment designers, gameplay designers, level designers, um, narrative designers. So there's a lot of sort of sub skill sets in there, uh, and then you have artists, so people who make the graphics, so 3D graphics. 2D graphics, uh, animations, concept art, even out of concept art, yeah. right? Um, UI design, all of that, all of those kind of little subgenres, and then programmers, so coders, programmers who s- code gameplay, programmers who work on tools and software, or programmers who work on the engine itself, like it, more like engineers. So there's a lot of skill sets that goes into into making a game, and sort of the how rigid those roles are kind of depend on the type of company. Sometimes larger companies have very rigid roles. So somebody might be a uh, environmental artist and they only work on exterior art assets. Or somebody might be just a uh, animator and they only animate. Um, other companies have people who can sort of bridge different disciplines. Um, I, I consider myself one of those people. So I, I, I like to do the art coding and design kind of all of all of those things. And, but you've been in roles in various uh, companies or, or terms of employment where you might just be focusing on one thing. Uh, well, fair, you were talking about uh, debris. Yeah, so I, I started out as a level designer and moved into working on uh, 3D assets like environment art stuff. And yeah. I really enjoy making derelict environments and debris and <laughs> <laughs> garbage and ruined buildings and the, the kind of things you would find in an apocalyptic game. Yeah, I mean, it must make... So, you know, everybody's got different things they notice as they're moving around in the real environment. I, I look at trees maybe a little a little bit too, too much. Um, you must look at elements 
mundane elements of everyday life and just kind of, oh, like there's a little rust there the way it's dented. I got to include that next time. Yeah, for sure. I definitely do that. I look in corners of rooms. Like where is the where is the dirt and dust collecting? Uh, you in know, a non-judgmental way, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> to- totally, yeah, a total uh, practical way. Like but how it, how can I use this to make a realistic environment? Yeah, but it is those subtle elements that make yeah. it feel more and more realistic. We, you yeah. know, to go back to Breath of the Wild, just hearing the the wind, the rustling of the trees, the the noise of the grass as you're moving through it, um, all of those things. You, I mean, they they add a level of realism that you, you could play the game without it. But it really yep. immerses you in it. Yep. Uh, yeah, it does. And it's just the little details. And they're kind of like little storytelling elements. Oh, yeah. Like little patches of debris here. Or um, somebody moved a chair in a certain way. And there's like, uh, you know, dishes on the table that used to have them. You know, somebody was sitting there eating a meal previously. Um, just little things like that. I, I try to, when I teach students how to design these virtual worlds and environments, I try to get them to think about how can I make this environment tell a story or how can I make it feel like it's lived in? So thinking about entropy and chaos. So I'm making sure that all of the furniture is not perfectly lined up, making sure there's little scuffs and scratches, making sure there's dust collecting here and there. And those are the kind of subtle things that you might not notice in the game specifically, um, but it does kind of subconsciously add to the experience. Yeah, yeah, because it gets back to the like the real lived world. Um, I mean, and, and you mentioned storytelling previously. We're talking about these elements like chairs moved or, mm-hmm. or meals left on the plate. And, and you mentioned last hour about games drawing people in and making them curious. Elements like that, I, I'm sure, are also used to move the story along. So if there's, if you need to find the key to open the door that was you know, back in the other section of the game, uh, you would leave hints that would clue the, the user in if they're astute. Oh, that plate is, is, uh, is sitting there. It's on a table. Maybe go, let me go check that plate out. Or why is there a fork on the floor or something like that? Right. And uh, Zelda games are good at that. Yeah. So maybe there's a secret There's a secret door in a wall and there's cobwebs and maybe the cobwebs are cleared there. Yeah. So yeah. it kind of indicates to you that maybe there's something here or maybe there's like a large crack in the wall and you know that if I put a bomb here, it's going to reveal a secret, yeah. secret door. It seemed like the original Legend of Zelda was less, um, did less handholding. Maybe I'm wrong, but it, it's... You know, like in this Zelda, if rocks are to be blown up, the rocks look slightly different, like you said. Or um, if if leaves can be burned to reveal uh, a secret, like they kind of, they there's a certain texture that you start to recognize after playing the game for a while. The original Zelda, like to burn a bush to find a staircase to a secret dungeon, it just looked like every bush in that game. Yeah. To blow up a rock to get to a secret cave, it just looked like every rock in that yeah. game. And, and I wonder if that was... As they progressed through the series, they said, well, let's make it slightly more playable. Let's make it easier for a person to, to honestly explore. Because the only way I got through The Legend of Zelda was Nintendo Power. I mean, I, I had, you know, like every, I, there, was, there were game, mm-hmm. there were guides that you could use to find some of those more difficult elements. Do you, do you feel like that's a, a trend or is that something you've, you've thought about? Yeah, that's definitely a good observation. And I agree with it. Um, I, I was thinking of the burning the bush example myself yeah. when you were talking about it. And games, uh, some people complain that games are a little too hand-holding. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely, I think that's definitely something to consider. I don't know if, if that's the answer. If, yeah. If they're trying to make it more playable, I imagine that's part of the answer, mm-hmm. making it more appealing to mainstream, yeah, making I mean, I, it easier to get in and, and not be frustrated when, when you can't find something very specific. Yeah, there must be that learning curve for every game. And you mentioned, you mentioned it earlier last hour when we were talking about good game design is, how well does the game teach you the things you need to know to be successful in that game? So, you know, in Breath of the Wild, you're on that plateau, and there's all kinds of uh, text 
mm-hmm. do this, try this, do this, do this. Uh, there are shrines that teach you how to do some of the more complex battle moves. Yep. Um, and that is definitely to help you be successful through the game. So you're not throwing the controller through a window or at a sibling. Yeah, the, the plateau is a great example because it kind of teaches you everything you need to know. It keeps you on that little plateau. Yeah. And then once you do it, you're released into the world and you can pretty much do anything. So, Yeah, you and I both have uh, youngest children that do play or, mm-hmm. or hang out with us when we're playing. And my so T-Rex plays Breath of the Wild. He's T-Rex on the show when he comes in. Uh, he is on the plateau and has the paraglider, uh, but has yet to dive off. I think there's a... And even as, an, as a grown man, as an adult man... That was a leap into the unknown. I think, yeah. I think it uh, it builds you up in a way that uh, that that makes that experience even more invigorating. Even, yeah. like, I'm ready now. I'm doing it. Yeah, it's kind of like I don't know if you if you know the work of Joseph Campbell and the, the hero's journey. So he he was a researcher that did a lot of research on uh, storytelling okay. and mythology and finding commonalities in all these stories that humans have told throughout history. Oh, fun! Yeah, and he has this framework called the hero's journey. And that's one of it, like leaping into the unknown. Is, is like a big piece of that uh, kind of like um, when Luke Skywalker finally decides to leave Tatooine like going off into the unknown oh yeah 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 that's interesting I'm sure old shoes is like I've told you about this uh, she's she's definitely uh, uh, part of that genre do you see that in um, in Dungeons and Dragons uh, double 10,000 do you see like that leap into the unknown after everybody develops their character they're all getting together on the on the campaign I think that's what you call it I would say so. I think especially when you're, if you start a game from the early levels when your players' characters are just little little shrimps, um, then there, I guess there's the idea of going from the familiar to the suddenly unfamiliar and... We're underway. Yeah, you're underway. And also with the hero's journey. I get there is, you could in- implement that into the into Dungeons and Dragons as well, especially with character arcs. Although whenever I hear it, I always just think of ninth grade English, ninth grade <laughs> English for me because we analyzed that in Star Wars oh, to really? death. Yes. It's you know it's funny. You can you, that's really fun as a student, then all of a sudden it could just like suck the life out of a out of a song. <laughs> I, I we analyzed um Graceland by Paul Simon in a music class I took as an undergrad and I can't hear that song anymore. <laughs> Uh, beat it to death. Anyway, so uh, we've talked about the various skill sets that go into game design, art, uh, programming, audio even. So like back in the day, Foley artists smashing cabbages together to make punches. Like th- the same kinds of things are happening that happen in Hollywood studios at this point. I mean, games are big budget productions, major titles. Yeah, uh, some of them rival movies, if not surpass movies as, as far as budgets go. Really? Yeah. And they take a long time to make. Some games take three to five years, depending on how big it is. Breath of the Wild 2 is in development, from what I understand. Yeah, and probably has been for a long time. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> as soon as they hit play on the, or it, like started selling the first. Let's take a short musical break, and let's get, deep, let's get into your research uh, explicitly. Talk about the program here at State um, and, and talking about the kinds of work you're doing and, and getting back to you know talking about mixed skill sets to, divide, to design games, the various backgrounds that are involved in the in the program here at NC State. We've got about 40 more minutes left in the hour. Let's play a short tune. What do you have coming up next? See, next up we're going to be playing I've Seen All Good People by Yes, which has chess in it, which is a game, not the kind we're talking about, but... Seems it's... seems fair. Seems fair. It's 88.1 KNC and Mystery Roach. 88.1, that was Yes with the song I've Seen All Good People, which has chess in it, which... Is, is a it, game. Yeah, it's a game. And we're talking about video games as part of our interview today. 
think one of my earliest uh, learning of chess like was a video game, Battle Chess, where you would move the piece and then it would become animated and destroy the other piece. So, yeah, it, it all works. It all works. Justin Johnson is our guest this morning. He's a game designer. He's an assistant professor of simulation and game design at William Peace University, and he's a doctor of design practitioner here at NC State University. Justin, we've talked all about games um, open world games, good game design. Let's talk about NC State. Let's talk about the program and let's talk about your research. So, um, you know, I, a question I asked you off air as a person who came through this university uh, with, with doctor attached to my title, I asked you about practitioner. Let's talk about what a doctor of design practitioner is, then talk about the program um, and talk about your work. Sure. So the doctor design program um, recruits people who are practicing designers in their field. Hence and, practitioner. Right. Yeah. And they can use the doctor design program to uh, conduct research and make progress in their field, uh, make impacts to the community, um, and then just kind of like push their uh, organizations or disciplines or fields or wherever they're doing into new directions. And that program here is fairly new. You said you're the first or second cohort? I'm in the first cohort. For, and there's a second is spun up and the third is in, in it being assembled, let's I say. I think so. Being yeah. programmed. Right. And you're seven, is that right? How many did you say there were? Um, I think there was off the top of my head. Let's I think. say seven. Yeah. That's a good number. And is the second cohort larger, or is it about the same? I think it's about the same. And you, you know, you come from uh, the gaming industry. You come from designing uh, games in various ways, uh, various, I guess, parts of that process. Uh, what are the backgrounds of some of the other students? So we have students who are, um, we have uh, landscape architects. We have uh, civil engineers. Um, I'm trying to run through the list in my head. Well, I mean, we don't have to be we all have instructional designers, <laughs> um, actually people with business backgrounds. So it's a very diverse and interdisciplinary group. And that and that mirrors what you would see in, in, out in the industry, right? I mean, you're working, as, as we've already discussed, folks, you're working with folks of various backgrounds. Right. And it's really cool and really exciting. I've, I've learned almost as much from my classmates as I've had from, you know, the classes and the professors. That's so a good compliment. Yeah, it's like a really cool, um, cohesive program where uh, we all learn together. We take classes together. I can get inspiration from other people's fields. And you start to find these like common languages and other design fields. And you start to see something where um, you might hear somebody mention some kind of design strategy or some kind of design tool. And you might think, hey, that sounds a lot like what I do in games. And then you can talk to that person and start bridging the the disciplines and um, sort of working in interdisciplinary ways, so it's it's really exciting. Yeah, I mean that makes a program worthwhile. If you're if you're working in a silo by yourself, you're you're not learning how to operate and think about your field outside of your field. And when you get into the real world, when you not that, that college is not the real world. I, I hate that boolean, and mm -hmm. I'm sorry that I used it. But when you get out and you're practicing, mm -hmm. um, you need to be able to do that. Intersect with folks with different sets of jargon that are working on the same problem and find common creative solutions. And that sounds like that's what they're training you to do. Yeah, definitely. So what about your work specifically? So uh, I'm using, obviously I'm coming in as a game designer, mm -hmm. um, obviously, right? So I'm trying to use, I'm, I want to make a game or design a prototype or an experience that helps people with attention restoration or stress reduction. I think those two things kind of go hand in hand in research. And I want to do that through the creation of a virtual reality game. So making a game that has a like very calming and relaxing experience 
Um, right now, I'm, I'm sort of approaching it in a landscape design kind of way where it's very nature-oriented, so like a realistic nature experience, um, kind of like you know how Breath in the Wild has all the living stuff, mm-hmm. um, moving and, and wind and um, fauna and all kinds of things that you can experience. And then maybe having some some gameplay in there, um, some like soft gameplay that can help. You know, nothing too crazy, nothing too stressful or anxiety inducing. <laughs> no um, goblins coming. Yeah, at them. no. Like maybe you can lift over rocks and find little critters. Maybe you can go fishing. Maybe you can skip a rock across the pond. And then having VR as that uh, the the platform can really open up the opportunities for gameplay mechanics and, and new kinds of gameplay. And um, being able to experience it and kind of shut out the real world. And when I say that, some people get concerned. And I've, I've had people um, not criticize me, but just give me some feedback. Like, well, why don't people just go outside? Why don't people just actually do these things? Yeah. Which is a fair point. What's your, what's your response? Well, not everybody can do that. So maybe somebody is in a, an institution or maybe somebody is uh, in a hospice or maybe somebody... I don't know, for whatever reason, somebody can't go outside. Or maybe somebody lives in a neighborhood or an environment that doesn't have a nice green spaces to explore. So, so maybe this could be a place where they could do that. So you're looking at not only economic and social stratification, but also differently abled, uh, allowing allowing folks to experience things that maybe they could not for, right. for, situa- for, for situation or, or circumstance. Right. And, and it does sound like that, because I had that question on my mind um, it does sound like that question is coming from, um, I am able to do these things. So everybody should without thinking through the fact that there is a spectrum of ability mm-hmm. and a spectrum of experience. Yeah. And there's a lot of research that shows people are spending less time outside. Mm-hmm. Maybe people that can go outside, maybe this could be a bridge. Maybe they can enjoy this experience and it might encourage them to go outside. I mean, I know it's not the same, but the augmented reality, like of Pokemon, for example, Pokemon Go right. tried to try to bridge those two. Yep. Um, you you must have thought you must think about those kinds of experiences as well while you're doing this. Yeah, I, I did a lot of research on. Well, I wouldn't say a lot. I did a fair amount of research on Pokemon Go, and how it, you can see if you go to the Wake County, uh, the Wake County. What's it called? They have a website where you can get their data. They I have think all it's Wake data. County. What's it called? I'm yeah. pretty sure. <laughs> I think it's like Wake County open data or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, but you can look at all the park attendance data and you can see when Pokemon Go came out, there was a huge spike in wow, Wake really? County park attendance. I used to love being at places like the art museum and watching folks of all kinds of uh, backgrounds like converging yeah. you know, out of space. It was always fun to watch. Yeah. And it's it's sort of questionable on what kind of experience are they having yeah. when they're walking around like the art museum, for example, Is or missing the park? Park. yeah, and they're looking at their phone <laughs> and the environment's just existing around them. But you know, you never know. Maybe uh, the game popularity tapers off. Maybe they lose interest, but maybe they keep going to the park. Now they know the museum yeah. is there. Yeah, there's all kinds of ways that you can knee-jerk criticize a, a, a phenomenon like that, or like the question you posed to yourself that that folks have asked you already. Well, why don't they just go outside? But the more thoughtful answer is the continuum of, exp- of experiences, the continuum of, of abilities. Uh, that folks are coming from. I mean, there's a lot of folks in the world. It's not just, I can go to REI, buy some boots, go to a national park and mm-hmm. go hiking. Like not everyone can do that. Yeah. And with, with VR and game engines, you can really push the limits of reality. You can break the rules of physics. You can make experiences that nobody could ever see or could ever experience. Or you could bring experiences closer to people. Like maybe you make a really cool outdoor Japanese garden in VR and people can experience that. 
without having to go to Japan, for example. They can rake the uh, the rocks. Yeah, they can rake meditate. the sand. They can, you know, meditate in the... Yeah, I mean, again, yeah. it is what's available to you. If, you. if you're living in a city, if you live and work in a city day to day, New York City, for example, Toronto, something like that, yeah. like it, it's not, you can't escape to the outside world, like to the woods in, in, in 10 minutes, mm-hmm. uh, as you can here, for example, get out to Umstead pretty quickly. Let's take another break, come back and talk more about your research, uh, and then we'll probably have another sh- uh, set then to close the show out. Remember, the collection comes up at 10. That's Prague from 80 to today, Prague and Experimental Music with Art Zoid. He is in the building and prepping diligently. What do we have coming up next? See, next up we're going to have All Come Running by Brian Eno, which I put in here mainly just because, just as a little joke for myself, since... Uh, whenever I played little video games when I was younger, I I always noticed that the protagonist would just run around everywhere while everybody else walked. It was like calmly. <laughs> like maybe the just, protagonist needed to drink less coffee. So that's our song. I'll come running. 88.1 KNC and Mystery Roach. 88.1 KNC and Mystery Roach. That was All Come Running by Brian Eno as part of our thematic playlist for today. And we've been talking with video game designer, uh, school design practitioner, a assistant professor in game simulation and game design. That is Justin Johnson. We've been talking uh, all morning about open world games, um, about game design, and about his research. We were just talking about uh, your project. You know, furthering that conversation, you're, you're at this point probably making your way around the research community at State and figuring out what kinds of components would add to that. So obviously game design, um, landscape design, but what other elements... What other backgrounds are you hoping to bring together uh, for work on this project? Yeah, so I'm, I'm still kind of narrowing the focus and I'm still trying to really think about what my end deliverable is going to be. Um, so it, it kind of depends on where that goes. So definitely landscape design is a, is a huge influence. Uh, I feel pretty comfortable with the game design part as far as asset creation. It, I have a lot of experience working with game engines and making assets and making it look good and, and run well. Uh, so, do, so you know, other designers hopefully maybe get into some environmental psychology or people who study different kinds of therapies for stress or PTSD or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe help identify a, a population I could work with or some kind of demographic that this kind of project would benefit. And, and just to further those ideas along, I mean, because you're here as a game designer looking to expand the way that that's applied. Right. And sort of put that idea into a proof of concept that people can play and experience. And so um, the program here at NC State it's, itself, are, are most of the students within the program working on projects, um, you know, applied stuff, or and has have those students, are, where are they in their projects? Are, they, are, are a lot of them working on similar kinds of things? What other, what other examples of projects within your cohort, um, you know, are, are being worked on? Yeah, so... There's, there's a wide variety of different projects, and a lot of them are things that that sort of lead to uh, an end. So whether it's something um, relating to the work they do at their company or organization, or um, I think there's other people that are trying to think of uh, some kind of prototype or approve a concept to build. So there's a lot of different things. People are, are working with like uh, like environmental resiliency and um, even like uh, food system management um, using design thinking to solve like really complex problems in education. So there's a lot of, a lot of, there's like instructional design work. So there's a wide variety of work going on. To your knowledge, um, where does NC State's program 
fit in the larger community nationwide? Are these programs popping up around the country? Is this is this fairly unique? I mean, it's young. I mean, these, right. most of these programs are young, given the technology. At least accepting the technology in an academic setting as a as a as a course of study. Um, where does NC State's program fit in with the nationwide? And I know that's a broader question, yeah. and we haven't reviewed all of them. But to your knowledge, like, are you aware of any programs like this program? Uh, I don't know. I'm yeah. sure there are some. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not. I don't have a huge, or I don't have a lot of extensive knowledge with uh, academic programs. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah, to, so yeah. you know, I, I teach game design, but it's it's very teaching, very uh, pro- professional oriented. So I, I got a, you. Yeah, big professional background. Um, but I, I think it's probably fairly innovative. I would say. I, I mean, I haven't heard of another program out there if if one exists. So I would say it's definitely unique in that sense. Let's, uh, we've got a few more minutes left in the air. We're going to turn to a question we got from Dr. Matthew Booker, who is our resident uh, historian here on Mystery Roach. Uh, he was in last to talk about his book, Food Fights, uh, which is a look at uh, some, some, let's say, popular discussions within uh, food-related topics with the aid of history, because all historians will tell you you can solve all problems if you look back through history. I, I tend to agree. Uh, he is asking about... Um, Let's call it spontaneous storytelling. Um, I'm going to read his question, uh, not verbatim, but I'll kind of skim through it. Uh, One goal in the gaming industry, his question reads, is uh, genuine choice in games. Uh, For instance, and he uses the term, the liquid narrative group, or this is a group, the liquid narrative group in Utah, or the visual narrative group here at NC State. Uh, Computer scientists using choose-your-own-adventure books as models uh, and a starting point to allow the user just pure exploration. Um, I guess there is some limitation in pure spontaneous explanation because it's got to be coded. It's got to be anticipated. It's got to be laid out. Yeah, that, that's a good question. And it really depends on how spontaneous or I guess how, how open the world can actually be because at some point it, there does need to be rules and structure. And yeah. there should, you know, and there should probably be some kind of setting or some kind of place that this experience, you know, happens in whether it's like realistic fantasy future, um, whatever that is. But um, if I'm understanding the, cor- the question correctly, there are games that kind of do that. So uh, there's a game that came out a while ago, Fable kind of does that. Mm-hmm. The The world kind of changes based on what you do. Your character physically changes. The, the characters in the game react differently to you. Um, there's other games that kind of move into that, like Dishonored. Um, we, we were looking up No Man's Sky. That was the one where I think there's just like an infinite number of worlds. Yeah, you can just and I I've never seen it or played it. I don't know if anybody here has. Um, you're welcome to hop on if you want to uh, briefly talk about. Artsoid is is raising his hand, but I, I my understanding of that game, and I'd love for you to chime in real quick if you don't mind. Like my understanding of No Man's Sky is that it is a game with an infinite number of worlds that you can just kind of explore. Yeah. Hi everyone. Hey, Artsoid here. So, <laughs> um, so tell tell us about No Man's Sky and it, does that fit into this question? I think it does. I think that. No Man's Sky still has a structure, although the most interesting thing about this game is that when they throw you on your first world, no one else in the game has ever visited this world. So you're saying in, in the online community? On the online community, yeah, no one else has ever been there. Um, and normally you can explore pretty far until you actually meet another player. Um, and... What's happening is that it's it's all this simulated yeah. you know, stuff that they're they're not handcrafting every world, but they have a algorithm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's described as 
entirely a procedurally generated deterministic open world universe, which includes over 18 quatillion planets. But there is a story structure which guides people who want it, which is, I think, a good way to go about an open world game mm-hmm. in general. Um, but I do think it is probably the most extensive open world game, I yeah. would say. So, yeah, and it, pr- procedural generation is is becoming a, a way to do that. So just generating these these vast worlds just using algorithms and, and computer code. Um, so yeah, that's a good example. But then, you know, if, if you're thinking about the choose-your-own-adventure model, you know, how much of that world changes based on what the player does and and is there a narrative that, that the player can control or are yeah. they just sort of building their own narrative by experiencing the game? Yeah, I mean, once you've set the engine out, the, gra- the, the, the you know, the, how gravity works, you know, how nature works, I mean, I suppose you can kind of randomly generate based on what's happening with the user. My, my main question is, you know, having read a lot of Choose Your Own Adventure books is how do you put your finger in the page where you had to make a decision in case you've made the wrong decision? That's my big question. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's not a real question. All right, so look, we're about out of time. Uh, we've come to the end of yet another edition of Mystery Roach. Remember, this show happens each and every Saturday from 8 to 10, bringing you prog, fusion, psychedelic, garage, and noise from the 60s, 70s, and beyond. I have been Datari Barbarossa. And I'm Double 10,000. I will continue to be so, and you can reach us throughout the week at the address mysteryroach at wknc.org. I want to thank our guest, Justin Johnson, game designer, Assistant Professor of Simulation and Game Design at William Peace University and Doctor of Design Practitioner at NC State. It was an interesting show, a lot of fun. I was looking forward to it. I'm glad we could get this scheduled. Yeah, me too. Uh, had a lot of fun. appreciate you having me on. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you again. Stay tuned for the collection. Art Zoid is here, as you know. He just spoke on the microphone. Uh, and he's got two hours of music that is Prague and Experimental Rock from 1980 till today. And to wrap up the show, we're going to be playing some moody blues with the song The Best Way to Travel. I guess the best way to travel through an open world. And it's off the album In Search of the Lost Chord. The best way to travel in Breath of the Wild is not on a horse, uh, much as old shoes would like it to be. Uh, Justin and I both uh, just don't want to ride horses in Breath of the Wild. Running and rock climbing. The horse, yeah, no horses. Once you get three full stamina wheels, there's really no reason to ride a horse. No. Sorry, old shoes. They just hold you back. They really do. They really do. It's 88.1 KNC and Mystery Roach.